0: If you have your Bible today, we are continuing in our sermon series in Luke's Gospel, today chapter 14. The text is printed there on page 8 in your bulletin, I think, or 9, or neither of the above, 10. (laughs) Um, One Sabbath, when Jesus went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully, and behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy, or we would call it today edema. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away, and he said to them, Which of you having a son or an ox that's fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, Lest they also invite you in return and you'll be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you. You'll be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, "'Come, for everything is now ready.' But they all alike, began to make excuses. The first said to him, "'I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused.' And another said, "'I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused.' Another said, "'I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come.' So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, "'Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city.' And bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges, and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, And if not, while the others are yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So, therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is the word of the Lord. Work now, we pray, by your Spirit as we hear our Father. For God, in Jesus' good name, amen. Have you ever thought about the fact that pretty much every human problem, whether it's in your individual life, other people you know, in kind of larger human communities, almost every human problem really boils down to either relationships or resources. You ever think about that? I was thinking a lot about that this week. I mean, it's not hard to see many, many problems in life are really a relationship problem. Some relationship is not doing well. And resources, you know, who owns things? How are, they to be, how are the resources that we have in this world, how are they to be managed? How are they to be shared? Put your finger anywhere on the globe right now. And these will be the basic issues in people's personal lives and in larger communities. Relationship problems, resource problems. I would even say that mental health issues, which is another whole big category, many, many, many mental health issues boil down to some problem in relationships often, or some, at least are aggravated by problems in relationships or in resources. You know, COVID, the pandemic, was an interesting illustration of all of this. I don't need to remind you how the last two and a half years really, really tested relationships in a time of crisis. But also there was so much debate about resources. We had to figure out how to even manage the air we're all breathing. But if you think about those two categories of relationships and resources, you'll realize realize quite quickly they all come down to a more basic question. And that more basic question is the question of rule. Who decides how we must relate to each other? You know, we act like this is obvious. There are certain ways people ought to relate to each other. Says who? And how? Who decides how we're going to determine ownership of things? And who's going to decide how we manage resources and how we share or don't share resources? Who decides all of that? That's the real question. And that question illuminates one of the Bible's very central images. The prophets of Israel picture... The coming kingdom of God, as a feast. That's a very interesting image and what we've just been thinking about, because what is a feast? They see the kingdom of God as they look to the future, as a time when peoples and nations are going to be gathered together in relationship around abundant resources there's this beautiful little verse in isaiah 25 where god says on this mountain the lord of hosts will make for all peoples there's the relationships a feast of rich food a feast of well-aged wine of rich food full of marrow of aged wine well refined there's the resources and the reason why that gathering around those that abundance is possible is because god is king god is the host Now, when Jesus comes along in the Gospel of Luke and many other places, he he uses the exact same image. You see it here in this text. He talks about the kingdom of God as a feast. But there's something else that shows up in Luke's Gospel. There is a rival feast of the Pharisees. There are a number of dinner feasts that Jesus goes to, and these are very organized gatherings. There's kind of a plan for how these gatherings are put together. They, they follow a certain pattern, but they are a kind of rival configuration of relationships and resources. But these feasts are very much opposed to Jesus when he attends these feasts. And this is the third time in Luke's gospel he's been to one of these feasts. Sparks fly. <laughs> because there's a conflict between the feast of God's kingdom and the Feast of the Pharisees. And that, king, that conflict, beloved, is still going on today. There is still in the world today a conflict between the Feast of God's kingdom and many other rival feasts. And so there's a lot to learn, first of all today, from the Feast of the Pharisees. I just want to look at this for a moment, this Feast of the Pharisees, and see some things about it. And I think you'll see that they very much apply even today. So there's this Sabbath day, Jesus goes to dine with his Pharisee. Now this is interesting. This third time he goes to a Pharisee's house, there's no mention of him being invited now i'm sure he must have been because you didn't get into one of these without a you know invitation but formalities aside do you notice the vibe as we begin this feast <laughs> you know jesus comes into the house of this ruler of the pharisees and they're all watching him carefully this is fantastic for digestion you know when everyone at the dinner table is like watching you hoping you mess up that's what jesus is walking into and i'd like you to notice just a few things about kind of the players in this drama of this feast the first thing you will notice in the opening six verses or so, they do not want a Messiah they cannot control. They don't want a Messiah they can't control. Now, look, people like Jesus doing his Jesus thing to a point. And I don't think the Pharisees have a huge problem here with the fact that Jesus might heal somebody. I mean, you know, who could really complain about people being healed? They don't mind the healing just so long as he does not break their Sabbath rules. So he can do his Messiah thing as long as it's on their terms. Now, here's the problem with Jesus. We've seen this throughout the Gospels. Jesus just goes right after stuff like that. You know, being God and all, he loves us too much to leave us in charge, to leave us in this place where we kind of dictate to God the terms on which his kingdom is acceptable to us. He just goes right after, here and in every one of our lives, he goes right after what we set up as ultimate over him. You know, for modern people today, it's a bit different from the Pharisees, for modern people today, what's ultimate? What's ultimate today is personal choice. I am happy to have God in my life just so long as he makes me happy, and he does not mess with my personal decisions and choices and options bring on Jesus as long as he's one more option for me to choose and as long as he kind of stays out of my personal choices i'm very very fine with Jesus but personal choice is ultimate that's sort of the modern thing well the pharisees of course it was a little bit different they were very into what was ultimate for them was the traditions of men you know they had all these traditions that had kind of gathered like barnacles on the torah the, the law of god And those traditions were ultimate for them. And Jesus goes right after this in verse 3, doesn't he? When he says, as there's this guy standing there with edema, this swelling of soft tissue, probably very disfiguring, very painful, and he's looking at this man and he turns to them and he goes right after what's ultimate. And he says, is it lawful to heal this man on a Sabbath day? The question he's asking is, is it lawful by your standards for God... To give life, to heal, to release people on the Sabbath day. You know, if your son falls in a well, is it okay for God to snatch someone from a well on the Sabbath day, according to you? Is it lawful by your traditions? What's he going after here? Notice the breach that he opens up with that question between their traditions which say come on the other six days to be healed and God's actual intent for the sabbath I mean you think about the sabbath day what was the sabbath day the sabbath day was what meant we're not in pharaoh's land anymore pharaoh never gave anybody a sabbath God when he becomes king starts giving sabbath a day for rest a day to remember God loves us and takes care of us and we don't have to slave before him because he cares for us we don't build his empire he gives us his gifts that was god's intent on the sabbath and jesus is showing very clearly with this question that there is a massive cleave between their traditions and god's intent for the sabbath which is actually nullified by their traditions they would rather have this guy go home with his ankles swelling in pain than have one of their traditions about the sabbath broken And it's interesting when Jesus asks this question he goes right after what's ultimate for them there's this stony silence both before and after the healing. He asks two questions they don't answer either one and that tells us all doesn't it? Because at this feast the sovereignty lines are drawn and they are not going to budge. They are not moved by the sufferings of this man with edema. They are not moved by the searing moral clarity of Jesus' questions. They know he's right they will not respond because they are in no mood to surrender the seat of authority even to the Messiah. That is not unique to the Pharisees. That is true of every system, whether it's religious or irreligious, in which anything is more ultimate than God's rule through Jesus. You have churches And they're all about God's truth, God's grace, God's power, God's love, as long as it doesn't interrupt the status quo. Because the status quo is ultimate. They're obviously secular rulers, and they're very happy to have the benefits of Christianity in their society. Don't talk about the claims of Christ. He does not get the throne. They want a Messiah. They do not want a Messiah they cannot control. And where man, not God, retains the seat of rule notice two other features of this feast so they want they don't want a messiah they can't control that's the rule question the authority question but notice two other quick features of this feast in light of that it's interesting second to notice that their relations are ranked so jesus is not lord of this feast And as a result, you also will notice that their relations are ranked. You see that beginning in verse seven, and Jesus starts to poke at this too because people are coming in and they're grabbing the best seats. Now, this is very interesting. In relational systems, in relational configurations where Jesus is not Lord, here's the hard reality, beloved. You either assert your place in this system, your worth, your rank, In this system or others are going to diminish your place and your worth by asserting their own if Jesus isn't Lord that really is the game you either assert this is my place this is who I am this is my worth this is my identity or other people are going to diminish that by asserting their own identity worth rank place etc the guests interestingly here Come get their seat. They grab their seats. Now, why do they do this? I don't know. Maybe some of them are just entitled. You know, this is kind of an American thing. I deserve this seat, right? Those other people can just deal with it. They don't matter like I matter. That's entitlement, right? And maybe it's entitlement. Maybe they just think they really do deserve to sit in these ranked seats. Or maybe some of them, maybe they're kind of the junior Pharisees, maybe some of them are actually seeking a kind of identity, seeking to kind of elevate themselves in the ranks. You know, I will matter if I sit closer to the head of the table. And so they grab that seat. They're looking for something. But whatever the motive is, the point here is that their place at this table is something they assert. It is not something they receive. And it goes without saying that in a relational system like that, it's going to be competitive. Because this really is a zero-sum game. If you're a seat closer to the head, guess what that means about me? It means I'm a seat farther away. And so there's a fundamental competitiveness in this relational system. But this is social life apart from Jesus. And it's very interesting that Jesus, when he starts to poke at this in verse 8, he says, when you're invited to a wedding feast, now that is weird, because this is not a wedding. (laughs) Why does he mention wedding feast? Well, he mentions wedding feast because in Scripture, the... uh, A picture of a man spreading a wedding feast is invariably a picture of God spreading the feast of his kingdom. And so Jesus is kind of hinting that there's a different kind of social arrangement where you can stop asserting, this is my place, this is my worth. And instead, you could come in and just take the lowest seat and receive a place, receive honor, receive worth, it's assigned to you by your host and he's going to circle back to that when we get a bit later to his parable about this man who spreads a great banquet so they're they they do not want a messiah they can't control their relations as a result are very ranked and there's all this self-assertiveness and competition but the third thing to notice about this feast of the pharisees and jesus goes after this in verse 12 is that their resources at this feast are given for a reward They're given for an immediate reward. Again, where Jesus is not Lord, what do you find in people's lives? What do you find in societies where Jesus is not Lord? The use of resources in these feasts, in these systems, the use of resources is dictated by return on investment, right? It's always dictated by return on investment. This is what we call the profit motive. If I give up resources for you, Uh, It's going to be because there is clearly something in it for me. And Jesus says to this man, whether it's a, the word dinner probably is kind of like a business lunch, banquet is probably more like a big evening sort of event. He says that regardless of what your hospitality is, don't do it for the people who can repay you. That's really cutting across the way they think. Because see, at the Feast of the Pharisees, because Jesus is not Lord, there cannot be actually extravagant generosity, selfless generosity. There cannot be that kind of generosity. Why? Because these Pharisees do not have God, the infinite, eternal rewarder at the center of their economy, where at the end of the day, that God, my Father, the great Lord of heaven and earth, He will repay me, even if it has to be at the resurrection of the just. That is not at the center of their economy, and so everything's profit motive. Everything is kind of studying the, the, the return on investment Is they're gener- generous, quote-unquote, to people. And of course, again, it's not unique to the Pharisees. This shows up in our lives too, doesn't it? All the time you see this in relationships. There, there, there's the very transactional way that some people relate. You ever relate with someone, you know there's always a ledger sheet? Every good thing, there's, 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 there's always this kind of, you owe me right? I give, you give. It's got to be always reciprocal. That's sort of a transactional approach to relationships rather than just freely giving. I don't care what the return is because God is my rewarder. That's one form in which this shows up in our lives. Great ledger sheet approach to relationships. Another way it shows up and it equally kills community is the person who's always keeping their options open. Why are they keeping their options open? Why don't they commit? Why don't they just dive in and give? And they're always kind of lingering on the fringes of things. Well, because they're waiting to see where there's most in it for them. You know, if you offer me something, but somebody else offers me something, I'm gonna go with them. If I get a better deal later, I go with them. And that, both of these, whether it's transactionalism or this kind of keeping my options open, they both destroy love. They both kill community because you cannot build God's kingdom with a kind of love that God pours into people if you're keeping score or you're hedging your bets. But this is the feast of the Pharisees. They don't want a Messiah they can't control. Their relations are ranked. Their resources are given for reward. But now contrast the feast of the kingdom of God, beginning in verse 15. We'll move more quickly here, but notice there's an interruption. So Jesus is just going after the feast of the Pharisees, question after question, word after word to them. Now in verse 15, there's an interruption in the middle of this very tense scene as he's just making everyone at that table more mad by the minute. There's an interruption in this very tense scene where somebody kind of shouts out, you know, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And Jesus takes that as a pivot point. He says, indeed, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the feast of God's kingdom in contrast to the one I'm sitting at here. And notice beginning in verse 15, the two things that Jesus says about the feast of God's kingdom in contrast to the feast of the Pharisees. First of all, beginning in verse 15, you will notice the relations here, the relations are all of grace. All of grace. Because God sets a kingdom feast, and all the guests of honor decline. All the people who qualify for the guest list decide they're not coming because they have better things to do. And so this man representing God sends his servants to go out and drag in a bunch of misfits. You know, the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. And they don't belong at this feast at all. <laughs> they weren't on the guest list. I mean, they are literally the B team. They have no claim whatsoever on this host. They have no, nothing whatsoever to pay to, to get in. They have nothing to offer the host. They have zero social capital. Not, none of them belongs here. Pretty obviously, that group is... A picture of the outcasts of Israel that Jesus and his disciples have been gathering the paralytics the tax collectors the prostitutes the, the the outsiders and they come in they don't they don't have any right to be here but they come in and and the servant says you know we we've still got room Lord and so he says great get outside the walls of the city into the highways and hedges and just start dragging people in here Beat the bushes to find a bunch of people out there who are even less likely to qualify than the people in the town. In fact, they probably don't even know this feast exists. And this is the Gentile mission. That's why y'all are sitting here today and me. And the feast begins to fill up. And what is the result? The result is a feast, obviously, of equals because no one deserves to be there. Nobody deserves to be there. How are you going to claim I deserve a particular seat if by rights you shouldn't even be at the feast? <laughs> I mean, how am I going like, to rank myself compared to these other people when none of us belong here? None of us should even be at this feast. So it just strips away any possibility of ranking. The relationships are all of grace. The gift of the feast is pure grace to all of these people. I mean, there's no merits required to be here. You don't have to offer anything at the door. The only thing that can keep you out of this feast is making excuses. But because that's the nature of the feast, it's pure grace. For that very reason, there can be no pride in being included. Ha ha, look at me, my bad self, over against all those people outside the feast. I mean, are you serious? There can be no pride once you're in the feast and receiving a particular seat, look at me, I'm like 10, 10 seats closer to the head than you are. How are you going to take pride in your seat over, the, over that of another guest when there's nothing in this whole experience that makes you differ from anyone else here except pure grace? If your host gives you a seat, then that seat is grace, that seat is gift. And if it's closer to the head, it's pure gift, so there's no cause for boasting. It's whatever the host assigns. My welcome here, my place here, my worth here, the things that are given to me here, they're not something I have to assert at all. In fact, I can't assert them because I have nothing to assert. They are simply provided to me, given to me by the host. You know, if, if you're a younger person today growing up in 21st century North America and you're watching the identity craze, Beloved, this is where your hearts find rest. You are loved by God. You are bought. Your life is owned because it was paid for by the blood of Jesus. You are his creation. He has redeemed you to serve his kingdom. You have a place at his table always. You are honored by the Father through his because he has, he has taken away your sin through Jesus and given you the righteousness of his son, and he loves you as he loves Jesus. And I will just say to you, if your heart cannot find rest in that, your heart will not find rest. And that is also socially why the church should be so different from every other society The relations here are all of grace. You know, we often use this phrase, and it's a theological phrase, it's a big word, but you know what it means. We talk about being justified before God by his grace alone through faith alone, meaning this. We have right standing before God by pure grace through the finished work of Jesus, and we receive that by faith. We don't contribute to that at all. Nothing in me gives me right standing before God. It is his grace, his gift that gives me right standing before God. That is justification by faith alone before god do you realize that is also a social principle you are justified before me by the grace of god and i receive that through faith you have standing among us in the christian community because we believe what god says about you not because you've earned it through your performance amen that's a different society Where the grace that binds us to our Father also is our standing with one another. And we are freed from the constant, competitive, zero-sum game of the world's relational systems. Or at least we should be. How different, how freeing should church social life be without all that competing for rank What are you going to, assert that your gifts are better than somebody else's? Have you forgotten they are gifts? So liberating. The relations are all of grace. And the second thing you notice is that the resources are all forgiving. Boy, this is strong. So there's this feast, and the servants are going out to drag people in, and among the servants that are sent to drag people to God's feast, Jesus is the chief servant. He's the son who goes out and beats the bushes to bring people in, But he goes on, beginning in verse 25, to note that that mission, to go out and bring people into the feast, guess where it's going to take him? To the cross. And as the great crowds are following him, he turns and he says, you need to understand something. If you're going to be my disciple, if you're going to follow me, here I am, the, the great servant, the great son, going out, I'm going to bring the nations, bring the peoples of the world to God's feast. If you're going to come after me and be my disciple and follow me, You are joining me on this mission. You will not only enjoy God's feast, you will join me in bringing others to it. And guess what that means? You too will bear a cross. And that explains the severity of verses 26 and 27 when he says, If you don't hate every relationship in your life and hate your own life, you can't be my disciple. What's he saying? I mean, elsewhere, the Bible clearly tells us to love these relationships. Well, he explains it in verse 27. You must bear the cross. What's he saying? You have to stop, you have to you know, give up your parents, give up your wife, give up your, do you have to like literally physically die to be a follower of Jesus? What he's saying is this. Even as you have received the kingdom without cost, pure grace, There must be no cost you are unwilling to bear in order to bring other people to this feast. No cost you will not bear. When Jesus says take up the cross, this is what he means. Take up any suffering God places upon you so other people can see his kingdom and taste his kingdom and receive his kingdom and come into the feast. That is what your life is now about. And if your father stands in the way of that, you renounce him. If your wife stands in the way of that, you renounce her. If your property stands in the way of that, you renounce it. If your own life must be laid down in order to serve with Jesus and bringing people to the kingdom feast of God, you lay down your life. And if you do not renounce all of it for that mission, now God may use all of that for his mission. He may use your relationships. He may use your property. He may use your marriage. He may use your children. He may use your, obviously, use your life. But any of it that you're holding on to and saying, I withhold that from Jesus' mission to bring people to his feast, you cannot follow me to the cross. This mission cost Jesus his life that others might come to the feast. So we have to be ready for following him for no less than that. All of my resources, verse 33, renounce everything you have. Does that mean you've got to get rid of everything you own? Certainly not. It means you renounce it in the sense that it's all on the table. It is all offered to God to run through the cross as he sees fit for the life of other people. For them to come to the feast. And I think that sheds light, lastly, on verses 28 through 32, where Jesus talks about this tower builder and king. I've been really helped by Nicholas Perrin's work on this because we always read that as if those are addressed to individual disciples. How many times have people said to you, you know, if you're gonna build a tower, you need to count the cost. You're gonna start a war, count the cost. And we always talk about it like he's talking about individual disciples. Y'all count the cost. I don't know. For one thing, there is never a single parable Jesus tells where a king represents an individual disciple. A king actually is almost always pictured as God or the son of God. And it's interesting about this tower building because you know what one of the big news items was in Jerusalem around the time Jesus is preaching this? There was this king named Herod who was trying to take the temple in Jerusalem and build it higher and higher and higher and more glorious because he wanted to be the builder of this sort of tower temple And, you know, one of the things that got laughed about in the news of the time was his stop and start approach to this. herod has been at this in Jesus' time for 46 years, and it's still not done. (laughs) And so people would just, you know, be almost ready to mock. Like, you know, you start, you stop, you start, you stop. Can you ever finish this thing? Did you count the cost? 46 years it's been in building. And so I wonder, is it possible, as we think about a tower builder or a temple builder, and a king going to conquer, is it possible that the tower builder and the king are Jesus? Because Jesus is telling his disciples that God's true temple in the world is not going to be built without a cross, and Jesus has counted that cost. And the wars of God's kingdom in the world, subduing God's enemies, those are not going to be won by great numbers. You know, the number 10,000 reminds you of who in the Old Testament? It reminds you of Gideon. And God kept whittling down that army. It's not great numbers to meet the 20,000 coming against us. A king who sends a delegation with an offer of peace, it looks like Jesus. Sending a delegation with an offer of peace. And he's reminding his disciples as he turns and looks at these crowds to follow me as the temp- temple builder, to follow me as the conquering king in this world. You'll have to take up the cross too because the cross is the cost of building that temple and subduing those enemies. And there is no suffering for the advancement of God's kingdom that will not be rewarded with glorious resurrection. So this is my word to you, beloved. Two things, be at peace in the grace of your king. You have a place of honor before God that you did not earn. And so it can never be taken away. And secondly, we're following Jesus in this little congregation. Use every resource that Jesus has given you to go forth and just show the world in every little circle in which God has you working, show the world the goodness Of God's rule, the goodness of Jesus' Lordship. Give without fear. Serve whatever the cost. Show the kingdom. And your reward will be great in heaven. That is both the rest that Jesus gives and that is the high calling that He gives to follow Him in the way of the cross. So lead us, Lord, we pray. We pray that we will so rest in you that we can work with all of our hearts and all of our might. We will so receive from you that we can give with your own generosity. Glorify yourself as we spread the feast of your kingdom in Jesus' good name. Amen.